Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 208 of Getting It Out Podcast. That was Napalm Death with Narcissus. That's all of their new mini-album, which comes out February 11th on Century Media Records. It is called Resentment is Always Seismic, A Final Throw of Throws. Uh, why it's a mini-album, I don't quite know, but it is. You got a couple covers on there, uh, a couple bonus tracks. It's a companion to Throws of Joy in the Jaws of Defeatism, which was their last record, if you're not aware. Um, and it rocks. No big surprise there. Napalm Death, a wildly consistent band and extremely likable band and people, from what I can tell from a distance. That Shane Embry seems like a nice guy. I just want to say that. I like that. He does all sorts of projects, but uh, this one is the one he's known most for. And... Uh, it kicks ass, no surprise. Napalm Death's still killing it. They don't need me to promote them, by the way. But I just like them enough that I'm going to put them at the front of a show. One of my favorite shows in a while. And uh, the best episode of the year of any podcast that's out there. On this episode, I've got an interview with Eugene S. Robinson. You might know him from Oxbow. You might know him from Bunwell. You might know him from Whipping Boy. You might know him for the things you read, the things you've seen, the things he's done. It could be anything. It could be everything. That's how this guy is. So I was delighted to have an opportunity to have a chat with Eugene. And that's what this episode is. So let's go. Yeah, what's good, all you bitches and bitches? It's the illustrious hot dog back at it again with another podcast intro. They said, oh, you want to do a podcast intro for the Getting It Out podcast? I said, oh, shit, I got to write a rap first, don't I? They said, no, you don't got to write a rap first. The hardcore podcast said, all right, I think I can maybe make that happen. Let's see what we can do. Kick it. Make family out of friends. Make friends out of enemies. Peace to my family. Make friends till they bury me. All the places we've been. When they've been sitting it out, we be getting it in. Where you getting it out? I said all the places we've been. When they've been sitting it out, we be getting it in. Where you getting it out? So yeah, thanks for uh, listening to my therapy session. We're going to move on with things now. Did you see the Cincinnati Bengals are in the Super Bowl? Are you kidding me? Ohio? What are they doing there? Who do they think they are? I don't know, but I like it. I've always liked those Tiger uniforms, so I'm in. I'm in. I'm all behind Joe Burrow and uh, what's, what's the other guy's name? Chase. I don't remember his first name. Nobody knows who anybody is in the Bengals, all right? Joe Mixon. Nobody has a clue who these guys are. Nobody ever heard of any of them. Tyler Boyd. Nameless fellas. Uh, they, they got a kicker, McPherson. McPherson? I don't know. Seems like he's all right, though. Won themselves a game, huh? Who else are they playing? They're playing the Rams, right? I don't like the Rams. There's nothing likable about the Rams, though. I do like their uniforms, too. Always have. But I liked them better when they were in St. Louis because I used to be able to use my uh, sports trivia question that nobody ever got right. I used to be able to say... There are six states with multiple NFL teams. Which states are there? And people will go, well, this is easy. New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, California, Texas, and and they never get the sixth one because it's Missouri and nobody ever thinks about Missouri for anything. But it's not Missouri anymore. It used to be Kansas City and St. Louis are both in Missouri. 
despite Kansas City not sounding like it's in Missouri at all, and St. Louis being, uh, it could be anywhere, you know? It's the South, it's Midwest, nobody's really sure. I think that's why they left the football team there. Uh, they, got, they got that arch, so what else do they need? Anyway, the Rams are playing the Bengals in the Super Bowl. I'm going to be out of the country for this one, so let me know what happens. All right? Uh, I don't know how, how other countries treat the Super Bowl. I guess I'll find out. Hey, let's get back to what I was talking about earlier. This episode has an interview with Eugene Robinson, Eugene S. Robinson. It's, that's an important distinction. You'll hear more about that at the end of the interview, but uh, and and he's 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 known for so many so many fucking different things. It's it's kind of exhausting to try and list them all off. So I'm going to tell you two things, uh, two bands at least, Oxbow and Bunuel. I'm going to play you a song from I'm going to play you Crackshot from Bunuel, which is their current single, and they got a new record coming out on Profound Lore. It drops February 18th. It's called Killers Like Us, and this song is off of that album. It's called Crack Shot.
You know, I was thinking I was thinking about you earlier and I was thinking about how like I, I got to admit like you and the idea of speaking to you intimidates me a little bit and I it's not like a it's not like, I don't know how to explain it correctly, but like like you're a person that has like completely in my opinion has like completely lived his life and I feel like I know you for so many different things and it's like a, it's a, it's amazing to me and I feel like it inferior <laughs> and I know how I know how ridiculous that sounds I'm totally aware of that no I mean I think I think it's something to be enjoyed you know it's like uh, I, I tell you uh, a friend of mine is this guy a uh, porn star Mr. Marcus and uh, these are like all these intersecting worlds and through him I met this other porn star who's named Olivia and I was talking to Olivia about Rollins and she says you know Rollins I go oh my god you know Rollins <laughs> she goes you know Rollins used to go out with my roommate I was like oh my god what a small world <laughs> you know it's just but then when the when Mr. Marcus found out that I was had become friendly with Olivia he was like my god because Eugene he gets around <laughs> you know it's like everywhere I remember same I saw the band X yeah. like four cities four cities in a row and it just happened to be how my schedule was working out. Like I saw them in Chicago, I saw them in Boston, I saw them in New York, I saw them in D.C. And finally, by the time I saw them in D.C., they looked out from the stage and were like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, you get around. And the only regrets I have about the earlier portion of my life, in actual fact, are that I, I, I find myself saying at odd times that I think I use my time poorly. And it, I mean, of course, it wasn't poorly. I mean, you know, time spent hanging out if you've got a mind to do something creative with that is worthwhile time. But I start to think, yeah, well, what about all that time I spent sleeping? I mean, I actually used to sleep eight hours a night. That was wasted time. And I was like, yeah, you know, relax. You could just relax a little bit and enjoy fucking what you've done. So yeah, I understand it, but it's just, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm invigorated by it and I hope that that would be a, a, a collective thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that you say that you feel like you haven't, you've wasted your time. So I feel like you've done so much more than so many other people that it's, that's, well, you know, what's funny about that, this shit frames your, my first girlfriend ever dumped me. And of course she immediately screamed out the window to her friend on the sidewalk who screamed to some other people. So everybody on the block knew it like the second it happened. And the reason that she gave for dumping me was because uh, I was boring. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and I'm, keep in mind, I was 10 years old. So how, how exciting <laughs> would you be at 10 years old? But I think maybe a certain aspect of that has haunted me, right? Like, there's a great book I have, but it's got Robert Musil. It's a huge book. It's called The Man Without Qualities. And I'm like, I don't think I'm that exciting of a guy, but I, I like to do exciting things. So maybe that's the thing, right? I, th I think I think I think you've done so. When when do you think when I right, I'm going to phrase this in a in a kind of a shitty way, but when do you think you got so weird? Um I don't think that there was any uh I mean there, there were a few things. There were a few things that normalized other people that didn't necessarily normalize me. One, I moved like 9 times before I was 10 years old. Yeah. Right. So I didn't necessarily have the, the weight of a community, you know, demanding I be one way or another. And then the second thing is I went to 
I went to a pretty cool uh, uh, private school that, to a certain degree, didn't hammer you down like, you know, normal New York elementary schools did. They were just like, hey, I mean, they weren't hippies. They mm-hmm. were like uh, uh, East Indian. So it had the very strict kind of British schooling thing, but they were very much steeped in and alternative educational like methods. So you were encouraged to be creative. So I remember at one point during, um, I remember clearly, I must've been about six years old. And during, uh, after lunch break, started doing this interpretive dance, right? That involved <laughs> a lot of mar- mar- marching. I remember marching and like we had fake guns, like, like in the in military, you know, they have uh, color drills. So it was like a color drill. Um, but there happened to be music on in the background. They thought that's so great. We're going to invite the parents up. So they invited the parents up and we just repeated this color drill that I had made up on the spot, you know? So, um, and I guess being involved in theater too. I mean, I like I liked the musical theater when I was a kid. So right away you're thrown in with people who are not part of the standard pack and not thinking about things sort of in the same way. And also I was a big kid. So, you know, <laughs> any kind of physical possible repercussions that you might have, you know, received from the community for being not quite in step that what you know, I was not like I was afraid of people physically. So Yeah, I, I hear um, you on that so a little pretty bit. Early, pretty er- so pretty early on to answer your question. Yeah. I, 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 I got you. And I hear I hear a little bit on that of being big and not have like like myself, I was when I graduated high school, I was voted class clown. I was a fucking weirdo and, and acted out my whole way through. But I was also, mm-hmm. you know, and I was into skateboarding and punk rock and all that. But I was also playing basketball. I was, you know, like I was, I was like you. I was not, I was not a small person. I didn't get picked on. But I, it, yeah. it, it allowed yeah, it allowed me to be weird. And, and that's, yeah, exactly right. I mean, 100% right. And, you know, the thing is, when punk rock became a thing, and I don't, maybe you were able to cloak this. I mean, I skateboarded too, but still my primary keep in mind, I was a competitive bodybuilder until for a long time. Right. Right. So when I got into punk rock in the, in the seventies and 77, I was still a bodybuilding kid. And then when I moved to California (laughs) in 1980 and started hanging out, you know, nobody would say this to our faces. Um, but when Steve whipping boys, guitar player and I would hang out, you know, he's like six foot six, 275 pounds. And so it was easy to dismiss us as, uh, as, as stupid, as jocks, right. Drop the stupid part. But, um, but you know, at the same time, you know, each community, each community has a need for, I mean, yeah, we may have been guys who knew a way around a weight room or, you know, a boxing ring, but at the same time, if shit was going down, like used to happen routinely when people would say, Hey, let's go beat up some punkers. You know, they were thankful to have us there. And I remember Tim Yohannan, who, you know, had the sense, these Stanford guys, these former football players, fuck them. I remember right before he died, I was at a record swap. And so this is well after I had graduated, you know, so maybe the late 80s, right before Tim had died. And he kind of came and he, by manner of way, sort of apologized and and acknowledge that he was kind of I I was wrong about you you know I was a little hasty <laughs> to judge and yeah. I was like yeah man I, I was weird well before you guys started thinking about punk rock you know so <laughs> stop stop it so so yeah well you got you got into I mean I've I've read a lot about you and and know quite a bit but you got into punk rock pretty early on right in the mid to late seventies. Yeah, it uh, it was it was a confluence of a whole bunch of things. It, my uh, 
my stepfather used to work, my mother's second husband was my stepfather at the time. He worked for the New York Post and quit as a prisoner of conscience uh, when Murdoch bought it. But before then, you know, so he was bringing home the paper. So I was a newspaper reading kid. And I remember reading about the Ramones and, you know, and uh, and the Sex Pistols. And, and you know, it was a, a kind of a combination of, like, just crazy like you could feel the heat and the light coming off of this kind of craziness and uh and Sid Vicious made huge headlines and I I did something even then at 716 I think that I've done repeated my whole life it's like and and then talking to other people who I've subsequently met like Lydia Lunch she's like up in Rochester New York she had the same thought that I had out in Brooklyn it's like I gotta get there <laughs> I got like I you know it's just like I'm reading about this thing all I have to do is get on a train and get there. And there's a guy I know ends up, we've done music together, ends up weirdly, we went to the same high school, didn't know it and looked down in lower Manhattan, but a year apart. And he was like, yeah, I, he was into it too, but he was always afraid to go alone. And I was mm-hmm. like, ah, oh, man, it's too bad we know each other. Cause I just went. Um, and so I started going to shows and, uh, but it was precipitated by my stepfather having brought home you. If you've read, you know, that uh, yeah. Eddie and the hot rods record, right. Teenage depression. And he just he responded to the cover because it had a kid with a, a gun on his head uh, on the cover. And so, you know, I got to see a lot of early stuff. And if you, you know, in the early days, it was just, you know, there's a lot of stuff that when it became codified as punk rock that wouldn't, would not have passed muster, you know. So I saw everybody from, you know, uh, Windorf's early band. <laughs> Shrapnel. Shrapnel. Yeah. Yeah. To, uh, to uh, Klaus Nomi at the Mud Club and then, you know, and um, the Rattlers and Joy, Joy Ramon's brother's band and just, you know, Von Lamo and Suicide. I mean, just anything that I could see in the Village Voice and I knew how to get on a train, I could get there and I had the money from my little, you know, <laughs> job that I had as a cashier in a fast health food store. So, um, <laughs> I, it was actually, it was a fast food, healthy fast food but there, of course, now as an adult, I realized what was going on. Yeah, how's they that put the body They put the bodybuilder kid in a French-cut T-shirt <laughs> and had me out of the front. And I was like, man, I'm getting picked up a lot here. This is great, you know. I mean, you're 16, you know, you're fucking 30-year-old women. You're thinking you're, you're doing, doing well. I didn't really care how much I got paid. But, uh, you know, the money got me into shows. So, And, you know, nobody bothered me, which is my friend's concern. But I, nobody cared about me, but nobody bothered me either, so... Well, I've, I've, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems from the things that I've seen over the years that your mother and your family was pretty well, um, they, they were totally okay with you getting in, into the scene, this punk rock scene about going out there and just doing your thing. Um, I, 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 well, I watched one interview with you, I think you did with Drew Stone, where you're talking about her being with you at a Killing Joke show. Um, (laughs) did, did you, did you recognize then how great that was? Um, well, uh, sort of, I mean, we, we still had some teenager parent agitator in the household. Um, but at the, but we, you know, but there was a, there was like a point at which that stopped. Um, and and probably very much connected to how big I got from from weightlifting. (laughs) And, uh, and I, I, you know, my, my mother was really clever in a lot of ways, you know, and was always testing the parameters of, of of me as me and me as a man and i remember at one point she was angry with me 
and I wasn't as an adult now, I don't even know if it was real anger, but she said, you know, go on upstairs to your room. And, you know, I went walking by her. She stood at the bottom of the stairs and then she raised her hand to me like she was going to strike me. And we had a moment where I looked at her and, you know, she looked at me and what I was transmitting with my look is if you put your hands on me, I'll fucking kill you. You don't do this. This is not how you're my mother, but I'm not putting up with this kind of behavior from anybody. And I think that and I think that that's kind of what she wanted to, you know, she was always she was always worried about she read some shit in Dr. Spock that that men raised by strong mothers uh, often ended up being homosexuals. <laughs> so, so she, she was she was always, always worried that that I was gonna be like like so you could imagine her delight when I had like pictures on my wall of like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Franco Colombo. I mean, nobody, who was body who was bodybuilding in 1976? You know, I had all these muscle guys on my on my wall. I mean, there's a point, a, fu- a very funny point where she was like, you know, you should go out with girls and stuff, and I was like. Really, Focused on academics and bodybuilding, you know. She's like, I'm not gonna have time, Ma. She's like, Yeah, and I, and I had a couple of friends who were actually gay, and we would go to the movies together. And she's like, oh, You know, I think Robert's gay. I go, Yeah, well, it's got nothing to do with me. I don't care. I like hanging out with him, you. You know? were tearing her so, up. <laughs> <laughs> completely hilarious. I mean, so uh, so I think she was. Uh, I think she was when I started. Like the grades were good clear i was on like the right path academically not having any weird social problems i think i had a girlfriend at that point so those concerns of hers might have been you know allayed that she really was just really super interested in you know as a good parent should be like where's his head at what's he doing when he goes like okay i'm reading about this shit in the paper but what's happening you know sadly we didn't get to see the show that night because i got beaten up and thrown out (laughs) But that's you know that's part that's part of the equation as well, right? Well, those 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 years, you, you let me if I have my timeline timeline correctly, you went out to California to go to Stanford pretty early, like in 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 the eighties, right? Nineteen eighty, October of October of nineteen eighty is when I I showed up to California, and not a minute too soon. If you paying attention to the timeline, you know. I went to see Clash's Rude Boy at a midnight showing out in Bay Ridge and got into a huge fight that ended up with me going to the hospital and then sewing shut the cartilage where a broken bottle had torn open my left ear, which has left me with ear problems to this day. I, I, that's why I started wearing tape on the ears yeah. because the ear hole is sewed so small on the left side that I can't really fit a earplug in that'll stay. So I have the earplug and then the tape and that's, it looked too stupid just to do it on one side. So. <laughs> I got symmetry going on, but that's but so so when you went out there, well, you, so you 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 people reference you as a as a New York hardcore scene guy, but that's I, I feel like that's a different New York hardcore scene than what most people consider to be the New York hardcore scene, like when they talk about like the eighties, right? Yeah, yeah. When I and then I covered this when I, I talked to uh, to Drew, the people who made the passage, you know, in other words, the people who were going to shows when I left were very few of the people who were at shows when I came back. That's what I figured. Right? Yeah, so, I mean, I knew a, a few. Uh, there was like I, like I mentioned, Drew Stone, it was Ira. I forgot to mention Claudette. Um, there were, there, there were like, there were like six people that I used to see at shows all the time. Mm-hmm. Jack Rabbit, Stephen Ayelpi from False Prophets. 
So these were punk rockers, you know. And then when I came back with, uh, you know, with with a hardcore band with Whipping Boy, um, I saw those people still there, and uh, and there were a, a shitload of new people, and, and, you know. And of course now everybody considers them OGs. I consider the them originals. second, and third gen. <laughs> yeah, the only per- only person who who made that passage you know, like feet first in a really bold fashion was, of course, Harley, mm-hmm. who I, you know, I was seeing him play. I remember I saw the stimulators. I must have been about 16, you know, and he was like eight. So, <laughs> or, or nine. I was, what is that kid doing behind the drums? And then when I came back with Whipping Boy, he was, of course, you know, and I didn't mention to anybody that I was a New Yorker because, you know, I had seen him play because we were getting all this love because we we're like this California band. And finally, I remember telling some guy at one point when I we did the first tour with uh, my, the shows with Minor Threat and I came back and uh, I hung out there for the whole summer. And I was I think I was working at the New York City Department of Parks. for the summer. That was my summer job. And uh I, I like a Clint Eastwood thing. I called out everybody who was not nice to me. <laughs> back to punk rock, and I got Ira one day and I said, "Hey man, you go see the Ramones at at the Great Great Adventure out in Jersey." He goes, "Yeah, I was at that show." I go, "Yeah, I know you were at that show because I saw you." And he goes, "Oh, I, I didn't see you." I go, "Cause I I wasn't in the hardcore band then, so you wouldn't have noticed me." <laughs> but uh, you did say something to me. He goes, well, "What did I say to you?" Uh, you said to me, push, push in the bush, <laughs> which was a popular disco tune of the time. And he looked at me and goes, I'm sorry, man. You know, you know, we've got a lot of shit in those days for being a punk rock guy. And I didn't recognize you as such. So I, you know, I just thought you were a disco kid. So I was like, no, 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 it's all right. You know, so and I and, you know, Claudette, I came out to I was like, yeah, I remember you from back. She goes, I thought it was you. So she had recognized me from before. But, you know. So even yeah, even a, the fact it, that you were at the shows, you weren't recognized as one of the people. Nah, because I wasn't. You know, I mean, I was perfectly okay being invisible. And the people who I've mentioned are, of course, yeah. you know, probably about four years, three to four years older than me, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm if I'm going to a show, and, and I've always looked younger than I actually was. So if I was going to a show at 16, I'd probably look like I was 30. But Claude, that was a, a woman at that point. She was not like paying attention to a 13-year-old. So um, she did remember who I was. So that right. there, there was that. But, yeah, but I mean, I was, you know, a hefty kid from the weightlifting. But still nobody, you know, nobody. it's very different than we, we roll up with, you know. I think with the first tour we did in a pickup truck, California plates and, uh, you know, 275 pounds steve hauling gear into a7 that left a very different impression (laughs) (laughs) right right well you mentioned this this you came back with whipping boy when you went out to california you started whipping boy and uh i think the first what's the first record called um it's it's a longer title uh i should know this i forget it though the sound of no hands clap that's it so that's that's 1982 right yeah that's correct yeah and you record that and i was i was just listening to that today and uh, Cracked Mirror, which, is, by the way, that's a, that's a hard record to track down these days. I mean, other than YouTube. It's on YouTube, but that's, that's, that's about it. Um, is that intentional? Hard to find? Intentional? No, just, just like that there's no Whipping Boy uh, on streaming services or anything like that. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's intentional. <laughs> Somebody have to get... I mean, look, we just moved... Hydrahead just died and Oxbow moved mm-hmm. over to Epicac. And so we had Hydrahead kill all their streams. 
if I, I man, I'm a pretty bright guy, and the guys in Oxbow are all pretty bright guys. And if you go pay attention to the timelines, you can see that we signed the Epicac, I don't know, July of last year. Mm-hmm. It took us until like February of this year to figure out how to migrate all that shit over <laughs> so that it, I'm not even kidding you, man. It I was just it. like, yeah. there was so many times I wanted to tap out. So the prospect of doing that for Whipping Boy, I was like, I don't give a shit. I, <laughs> Whipping Boy exists at this point only so I could keep suing the Irish guys who I sued one <laughs> using the name and made like $22,000 out of it because they trammeled our copyright. So oh, wow. I had to get, I got to keep fighting that battle. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> the only ones that pop up. I mean, like, again, I mean, you got it. You can, you can find it, but, uh, but like easily it's that Irish band and, uh, I got no interest. Yeah. 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 They, they, they came to me a couple of times and said back when they were on like black cat records or something like that through an intermediary friend in the UK said, you might have could use the name. I go fucking change it. And then they, they didn't. And then I called their lawyer and their lawyer was really disrespectful. He's like, he thought he was dealing with some stupid, you know, hardcore kid. He's like, okay, okay, what do you want? Okay, what, 200 bucks, what do you I go, hey, is that what it would cost you if I drop in the mail this TRO that I have in my hand right now? If I file this temporary restraining order, do you think it would cost you $200 to take every single one of their records out of a record store in the U.S.? Is that what it would cost, 200 <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, all right, two thousand. I go, come on, you know, you should call me back. I'll drop this in the in the mail, and you should call me back when you get your ducks in a row. And I dropped it in the mail, and then they came back, and eventually ended up paying me twenty two thousand dollars for grandfather closeted in, so that I wouldn't, I, I I wasn't forcing them to pull the existing records in the store. And then flash forward to a few years ago, like 2012, Oxbow was playing Dublin, and I'm sitting at the bar at this at this venue called Waylands, and some guy sidles up to me, starts talking to me. Turns out he's friends with the guys in the band Whipping Boy, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, you pretty much ruined that band." It's like, "Damn, <laughs> that shit. That's not on. That's not on me." These guys called me several times. I told them. And with the internet, there's no reason for you not to know there was another band with that name. Get the fuck out of here. So, sure. Yeah. You know. Would you consider yourself a confrontational person? I'm not necessarily. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I mean, but, you know, when you think of the things that you're motivated to do out of fear, um, you know, I, 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 I I, I I hate the stench of fear, and I and and I hate to be in situations I can see where people are, are are motivated by any kind of type of fear. And I remember what was the great movie where somebody said uh, it was an old 1940s movie. When, uh, it's like some Humphrey Bogart movie, and he said uh, it's some it's a meditation on courage. Yeah, I said not courage. He goes, that's all about the edge. And the guy goes, edge. He goes, yeah, you having something that the other guy doesn't have, that gives you an edge, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that means that you, could, it, you could proceed through life in a fairly, you know, in a fairly fearless fashion. I mean, certain amounts of fear are great. Like, I don't go into caves where bears might be, right? Sure, yeah. I'm afraid, reasonably afraid of bears, right? So <laughs> that make, that make, that makes a lot of sense. But otherwise, why should you be afraid to, to, to express an opinion or, or move through life? I mean, even... And keep in mind, this is a family tradition. I come from a long line of people who were like not just not gonna take that bullshit. You know, <laughs> I mean, like we, sister and I, she's a, an animator, one of my sisters, and we said we're gonna do something with the family coat of arms 
and the slogan on it was, what's that supposed to mean? (laughs) 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 It's like, I'll I'll argue with you about anything for as long as I'd like it. If you don't like it, well, then there are other options, right? (laughs) Um, <laughs> but in general, yeah, I'm, I don't consider that confrontational. To me, that's just it's it's hygiene, right? Yeah, no, I hear you. I like that too. Um, do, so when when you're out there, you're doing these tours with Whipping Boy, and you're playing shows, and you're you're getting some momentum, and then you guys make a um, make a, a, a sound shift, right? You, you shift more experimental on on <laughs> subsequent releases. Was that a, was that an easy decision? Did you feel like you wanted to go there, like? From I mean, how hard was it to resist that? I guess. Well, uh, we we misunderstood uh, the marketplace as it was, but it was really necessary to have happen. Like there, you know, there are people I know who who have make perfectly good livings playing genre music. Mm-hmm. By which I mean, I woke up one day and said. I want to be in a heavy metal band or I want to be in a ska band or I want to be in a noise band or, you know, any, I want to be in a jazz band. Yeah. And then they set out to, to do that. Right. And that's not, I remember having a conversation with Biafra and maybe this is the late eighties. And I always thought that the, the, the biggest mistake he made in his life was after which trials came out that record, not pursuing that. Right. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it seemed to me like he was presented with an option. He said he could do what was now genre music. And they did. And, and God We Trust was, a, was a, uh, probably the last great Dead Kennedys record. And, you know, and I sang on others after that, but I didn't think those were very good records. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, when the Witch Trials came out, OK, yeah. And it, In God We Trust should have been a swan song and they should have kept doing weird stuff. And I, and I knew on a certain level it was necessary because I knew emotionally I wouldn't be satisfied with playing hardcore forever because I'm looking at this kind of artistic enterprise as a conversation that we, the, the artists, producers, are having with the audience, the consumers. And at a certain point, whatever problems I was working out with hardcore, I knew I would, I would either have solved them or I would have become really boring. Um, now I have friends who are in really good hardcore bands and who I like, and it's genre, but they really embrace the genre. It's a lifestyle for them. And, or same with metal. I don't. I don't have any friends in the ska band at this point. I don't think. But you, you know what I mean. You yeah. can. You can really get a lot by embracing a genre. But I. Uh, um, I think Muru Muru, which is a record that you're referring to. Yeah. We assume. People were along for the Whipping Boy ride, not because Whipping Boy did genre music. And we uh, we discovered um, we discovered pretty clear, qu- clearly and quickly that that wasn't the case. Like people weren't listening to Whipping Boy because they were interested in Whipping Boy as artists, but they were interested in Whipping Boy hardcore, which was fine, you know. And the third record, uh, Third Secret of Fatima, we kind of kind of didn't so much toe the line because that's not by any stretch a hardcore record but it is kind of a, a more metal it's a rock record or as close as we're going to get and none of those records make me as happy as anything that any oxbow has done or in recent times this Bunuel thing that i'm doing yeah. so because those are clearly just a product of what i told biafra in the 80s he goes, well, what kind of music do you want to do and i said i want to do the music that's in my head 
And he goes, well, that's what, what we're all trying to do. So, yeah, but you're, you're, you, you know, you've got a war in your head, you know, where you realize I could do weird stuff, but I could do this. Other. And I, you know, I never made the kind of money that they made. So I, what was I losing by doing stuff that was weird? Doing, I mean, you know, keep in mind, Fuckfest, the first Oxbow record I'd done is a suicide record, right? I was going to kill myself after it. And I figured I just want people to, to hear what I was thinking. And that's the, the spirit under which I chose to do that record. Um, and that was precisely what I was telling Biafra I wanted to do. I wanted to capture the music in my head, and that was the music in my head, you know. And then, of course, <laughs> the record did well enough where I was like, ah, okay. I still wasn't con convinced I needed to stay alive until somebody in England got fuckfest and goes, these guys need to play England. And I was like, ah, maybe I should see London before I die. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, then I was like, yeah. I'll leave dying for other people. This is actually all right. So, <laughs> well, well, I'm glad that you made that decision. But the 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 Oxbow was. Do I read, have I read correctly in that it was initially intended to be a solo project for you? Yeah, it was. I mean, we've got we've got stuff. Um, uh, we've got stuff. Uh, I, Bart Thurber has got tapes where I was playing bass and drums. And I was like, my God, this is going to take forever, given my rudimentary musical skills. Um, and um, and um, and Nico, I mean, the problem I was having was I wasn't having such a good time democratically producing art. Um, and so when I said I want to do a project and I want it to be along these parameters, you know, um, Nico embraced it as a... As, as what it was, which was a project. It's, we're, all, we're just going to do this weird art thing and try to achieve these kind of sounds. Um, so, it, yeah, that's the weird thing. I could, there's no way in the world I could have done it without Nico. Um, <clears throat> he gets full, cre full credit for that. So, um, so, that, so that's... And, and, he, and, and, and he was willing to do so. I mean, there, you yeah. know, we had Klaus, Klaus Fluoride came in to play on the first... Uh, first uh, Oxbow record and at one point he kind of flipped out and was like I, mean, I can't play this shit and he's like I'm done <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm out I can't do it so uh, I was like alright I guess it's not going to work so. was there anybody else doing what you were trying to do or what you were doing at that time um, well there were bands that they compared us to at that time right mm -hmm. I mean there was a bur there was a bur I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Well, they would compare us to, um, they would compare us to uh, Butthole Surfers or uh, uh, Scratch Acid, you know, which 
then later became Jesus Lizard, mm-hmm. um, or, or the Melvins, I think is one of the early comparison points. But I don't think that those are accurate representations. But they, they, um, they, um, they, um, let's see, they, uh, they were cautionary tales. Right. They were cautionary tales like like uh, I, I did not want to be caught in that in that wacky butthole surface thing. I don't want to have to be a joke. I don't want Oxbow to be. So in a lot of ways, they, you know, did inform um, our existence by setting out like a path that we didn't want to do, you know. Sure. Yeah. So. And is that just because of like the. Like the butthole surfers a lot, like the the humor in it, like it wasn't taken being taken seriously. Um, yeah, I just didn't, you know. I've always had a problem. I mean, if you, I got a good sense of humor, but I don't, you know, that maybe it's not all every. I don't want to get out. There's jokes and they're jokes. I don't want to. I mean, that's not the sound that's in my head. I mean, I've had, I've, I've had, you know, I've had. Uh, you know, interviewers in Germany say FC and Oxbow show and go, well, you seem so crazy up there. You seem so normal up here. I, could you explain the dichotomy to me? So the problem is that you think the guy talking to you now is the guy, right? right. <laughs> the guy is that guy <laughs> on stage. I mean, I'm holding it together while I talk to you. Cause I know it's only going to be 40 minutes, you know? Yeah. So, well, between, between, uh, like fuck fest in 89 and, uh, let's go with Thin Black Duke in 2017. Does Oxbow provide you the same same outlet it did then as it does now, or is it a whole different thing? No, I, I mean I've said recently that Oxbow to explain people the difference between Oxbow and Bunuel. That Oxbow is like a, a documentary, um, and and Bunuel is like is like a, a film, um, and they're filmic elements, of course, to documentaries, but the reality of it is like in a, like a, you know, uh, it's, it's been a, di- I mean, the song cycle for Oxbow for me goes from Fuckfest to Thin Black Duke. And the one that we're still working on right now, Love's Holiday, mm-hmm. is a complete departure and that it's not part of that emotional song cycle that started with Fuckfest and it ended for me in Thin Black Duke. So it's fundamentally a different record in its guts, but it is still a documentary. Whereas Bunuel is still kind of like in id, you know, in Freudian terms, id-based, id-based film uh, that I'm enjoying, and that it sort of encapsulates what I've been doing when I haven't been doing Oxbow, which is why it sounds like what it sounds like, right? It sounds wild, and we'll talk about that a little bit. <laughs> I really like that, especially that last song, <laughs> "Crack Shot." But uh, the yeah, the, you're you're re-releasing "Let Me Be a Woman," which is your third Oxbow record on. On uh, on Black House Records, originally it was on Correct. Brinkman and uh, the Crippled Dick Hot Wax Records. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and never, never in the U.S. Never in the U.S. Okay, that, that was going to be my question. Why? Why let me be a woman, and why now? Um, we're systematically going through and trying to re- put everything, um, ev- everything that Oxbow has done uh, on on vinyl or at least you know formats that are not disposable mm-hmm. we'd like one label to do it but we haven't been able to get so hydra heads hydra heads start you're gonna have to deal with a crying kid for a bit because a wife That's has a to clue. go out it's all so good. i gotta <laughs> yeah um so 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 that's um that was you know we would like have liked epicac to do it but 
you know, you know, we'll, we'll take it where we can get it. And it's really limited. Like last I talked to Scott Roselle, there were 11 left. So (laughs) (laughs) by the time this comes out, I imagine there will be none left. Right. So, yeah, I'd imagine the, the, uh, so, so the other, the other ones have already been, um, fuck fest and King of the Jews already came out and hide your head, I guess is what you're saying. And, the yeah, let me be a woman is coming from coming on Black House. How did you get? How did you get hooked up with Scott and Black House Records? Because I, I know Scott from uh, from talking to him like this before, where we were talking about Sterile Prayer, which you actually appeared on. Um, but how did you yeah, and Scott become he, friends? He wanted to do Fear Power God, which is the one that we did. That was uh, with Anton Levey and Allen Ginsberg and you know uh, Lydia Lunch and Biafra and. Uh, Charles Manson. So that record, he wanted to reissue as a CD. It had been out on tape. It had been out in vinyl. And I was like, sure. And I knew him from when he worked at Neurot. And that's the other record that's been released, re-released on vinyl was uh, An Evil Heat. So we've got Fuckfest, King of the Jews, Now Let Me Be a Woman, and Evil Heat. And we'd like to work through the whole whole rest of the catalog. Mm-hmm. Scott is interested now in Serenade in Red, I guess. So just a limited edition, but it's just not, I mean, it's impossible to find Serenade and Red on vinyl. So that would be really nice to have done. And then, you know, then we have the, we did a show with Broadsmith at the Moore's Jazz Festival. So that's coming out on uh, two labels um, in the next six months. So yeah, it'll be, watch out for that kid. It'll be a busy 2000 and uh, 2022 for us. It sounds like a busy 2022 for you in general because you got that Buñuel. So I'm going to say that wrong every time. My wife's Italian. I can't say a lick of Italian. Um, <laughs> well, he's Spanish, so you should get it. He's a, he's a Buñuel. Right? Well, I know he's yeah. He's the Spanish. He's the Spanish filmmaker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Buñuel. I just Buñuel, I think yeah. of like wellness, like the road to Wellville. Right? Got, got <laughs> but right, I want to ask a "Let Me Be a Woman" question, and um, that record that record was the first that you did with Steve Albini, right? Correct. Um, I mean, I, I know that's that. He, you know, he's a pretty legendary name as far as a producer. But what what about that? What about "Let Me Be a Woman"? That record or the writing of that sticks out in your mind? Um, I probably the recording of the song "Gal," um, and I remember a couple of things about it. I remember first of all when I record vocals, I typically will lock put myself in the boat. Say, you know, Steve was like okay i go can i i don't want to see you guys when i sing and they're like well we, i said okay put something up because i don't want i'm telling you i don't want to see you yeah he's like okay and he was and i said also steve i don't want you to come in when i'm doing it and he was like what do you what if i need to just i go i'm just telling you don't come in and uh he's like, okay crazy dude right okay fine i'm just telling you and um and we did the song gal and uh it was it, it, <laughs> i mean you gotta listen to the song and the song ended and it was like nobody in the talk back mic nobody came in the room and it took me like about a five ten minutes to get, get, you know compose myself afterward and uh and then uh i went out and in a really deft way Steve said, uh, and usually I would stay in until the next song, but I had to had to go out in a really deft way. Steve said, okay, uh, you want to get in there so we can finish the record? <laughs> Which just kind of normalized it. It was like suddenly back to reality. I was like, yeah, 
and went back in and we finished the record. So it was the recording of the song Gal that left the biggest impression on me. And also the fact that I discovered during that session, I'd worked really hard to maintain a distinction between Whipping Boy and, and, and Oxbow because in those days people would just dismiss you with, oh, that's a guy from Whipping Boy. So right, yeah. no, credits on the, no credits on the record, none of that. I don't want to just dismiss this. I don't want to judge based on anything. So I was like, I wouldn't even use like real full names. So when Steve came out, you know, I wouldn't talk about Whipping Boy. And then he revealed during the session that, of course, he had seen Whipping Boy play. <laughs> so so he knew I was a Whipping Boy. He just thought it was kind of weird that I wasn't mentioning it, but whatever. You know, so, yeah, I, 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 I loved working with him and I love him as a person, actually. So, you know, a lot of these songs have weird histories on and around them. Um, and uh, a thousand at this point now is a very strange song for me to sing because this woman who was who was like being you know how the UK music likes to work she was being kind of posited as like the female the British UK uh, the UK uh, Courtney Love she okay. got obsessed with the song and her name was Elide Bradley she got obsessed with the song tracked us down because she was her band was Solar Race was her band also recorded by Albini tracked us down and she we became friendly and then she really wanted to play that song live and then she sort of killed herself afterwards so Ooh. um so that song is taking on a really weird weird resonance to me you know mm. um as and i mean there are lots of song stories like that connected to every oxbow song so that doesn't make it unusual but yeah right yeah funny times Yikes. Well, um, the the other th- Bun Bunwell, like you mentioned, has a you have a new album with that band, but that's this is like your third record with Bunwell, right? <laughs> yeah, the first two. Yeah, there's only so much time in the day. The first two, uh, Resting Place for Strangers and uh, uh, The Easy Way Out, um, came out on an Italian label, and they were accompanied by tours, um, but it took uh, profound lore to finally say, hey, maybe this should actually happened in north america <laughs> you know uh, so everybody's like oh well i mean it's okay they can find the kind of find the back catalog i mean i like uh, i like the the records uh, i i back love the records and uh, it's actually given me an opportunity to sing with my wife which is is is, is rare she's on actually all of the records so oh nice. it's kind of kind of Kind of, kind of like a Sonny and Cher thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, Kill, Killers Like Us I mean, that's is the her, name of that's, that, that, that's yeah, that's her on Crack Shot. Oh, okay, nice, awesome. I didn't know that at all. Uh, I don't know. I don't know much yeah, yeah. about Bunwell, but uh, but maybe that's because it hasn't been here. But maybe it's just me living under a rock. Well, so. you know, it's great. What's great about Bunuel is like it's an Italian supergroup. Like the guys in the band are all in huge bands. The only band that had a crossover was the former bass player who put the band together, Pier Paolo Capovia, was in this band called One Dimensional Man that played support for Oxbow in Rome years ago. And that's how he tuned everybody else into us. But they're in much, much larger bands. So it was a great pleasure for me to show to you know, to play these shows uh, on tour with them in Italy that people are like who are you? I got to walk out and there'd be like 2,000 people there. And I'm like, man, Goodwell is really, I go, wait a minute. These are not Oxbow fans. These guys have no idea who I am. You know, it was really, it was really kind of joyous in that way. So well, how'd, how'd you get linked up with these guys? That was going to be what, like, that was going to be one of my questions here is that it's you and a bunch of Italians. How does that happen? Well, the guy, the, uh, like the guy I said, Pier Paolo Capovia had yeah. been in uh, one 
Mitchell Mann, and they played support for us in uh, when, or Oxbow played Rome some years ago. So and he remembered and loved us since then. So he's the one who put it together. Gotcha, gotcha. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, and uh, I think I mentioned, but I'm heading over to Italy in a couple weeks here. So uh, so you guys should go over there oh, and yeah. play a show. Um, but <laughs> where, where 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 are you going? Where are you going to be in Italy? Milan. Oh yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. stomping ground. I love that place. Yeah, yeah. You know that's where my wife's from. And yeah, I, actually, I, I, actually, I was uh, I was in, a, in Milan in a pizza parlor. I'm sitting there in the window eating pizza, and these girls are like, you know, it's like high school girls like looking. And I go, yeah, you know what? Bunuel is not that popular here. This is not. <laughs> I'm not believing. And this is. And then finally, they say in like Italian that they thought that I was Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, come on, get out of here with that. You know, I chased him away. Like, I'm like five inches taller and like 40 pounds heavier than Lenny Kravitz. Get ah, out man, here. Lenny Kravitz. You don't know how big. Maybe he's a, you know, it's TV adds 30 pounds, right? They might think he's. Well, you know, he, he I, I used to be editor-in-chief of this magazine, and we put him on the cover with one issue. And the thing that I discovered about Lenny Kravitz is that the reason he always wears shades in the photographs is because he's got an eye that's messed up, like that, like points the wrong way, you know. Oh, really? So I go, wow, it, he's done a really him, him and Rod Stewart's uh, hunchback have they've done a really great job of concealing. <laughs> Rod Stewart's know. a hunchback. If you look at photos from him from the side. He's got a hump on his back. I'm pulling yeah. out his greatest hits record right now. Uh, he's leaning over. Yeah, he's um, not. You, you, yeah, he's done a good job of hiding. <laughs> he's it. hiding like Lenny with one. the eye. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's really funny. Hey, so all right, it's so a little bit of change the subject here, but the I, one of the interviews I read with you, you, you made a comment that I that I really found interesting, and uh, you said after having kids, everything sad makes me really sad. Yeah, can you elaborate yeah. on that at all? Yeah, there's certain certain amount of news I've always taken as I'm not a humanist, you know, and I always taken a dim view. Tell me, ah, oh, you know, forty-five thousand people got killed. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm a New Yorker, right? So right. it's like it's none of my business. They shouldn't have been in the volcano. What can I tell you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> but but at a certain point, you know, somebody at one point, some religious person had said to me, "You under you understand when you look at your kids, even when they're grown up, you still see kids. That's how God feels when God sees you." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't know about all that, right? Right? <laughs> but I do understand." the second part of your reduction which is that you know i i have a, my oldest daughter is 25 and i look at her and i still see you know i still see the infant right mm-hmm. so and uh, my youngest daughter is 18 months old and and i can telescope forward into the future when she's an adult so it's like you know some guy interviewed me the other day and uh, from a polish magazine and it's weird the political sympathies there are completely reversed. Like he gave me a hard, was give, sort of giving me a hard time about the gun on the cover of Killers Like Us, the Bunuel record. <laughs> and but then at the same, tried to pull me into a discussion about cancel culture. And I go, Do you have? I got four daughters. Do you have any idea how how hard it would be to look at your infant daughter and realize that some some number of my daughters will grow up to be women who are raped. Do you know how fucked up that is? And about what? So stories, news stories that are horrible. I, at, at this point now, my reference point, I'm level setting at, at the infants that are running around my house, you know. And at a certain level, you know, somebody should have loved these people uh, who who are, who are doing the killing, 
or at some point, you know, some people are going to be devastated about at, at the people who were killed. I just can't. I can't. I mean, that's why one of the reasons I'm making plans to to like my friend Jamie Stewart from Juju says, I'm going to stay ahead of the disaster this time, making plans to to get out of America because at least that way I don't have to be tied up into the media cycle. I got to go. Got to go. Can't take it. You know. Wow, that's uh, <clears throat> that's that's very well said, and I, and, I, and I totally agree with what you're saying. And you know, as a parent myself, uh, I, I I I found it yeah. Well, the guy, yeah. the guy, when I, and I tried to I, like I'm no Pollyanna. Like I said, I brought up Louis C.K. very specifically. I go, well, you think he's the only guy to jerk off in a hotel room? I've done that, you know, <laughs> but I didn't block the door. <laughs> you know, it's a, seriously, it's a small difference. Like men are going to be men to a certain extent, but you know, I'm a big guy. I'm not. It, there was no implied threat. It was just a good time. Hey, you don't want to participate in a good time? Okay, see you later. <laughs> yeah, no. So, and then maybe they could tell their friends, hey, you know that jerk Eugene? He was like jerking off, so I had to go. And then, you know, so okay, that's the story you could tell. Fine. <laughs> that's, but, uh, that's pretty and, fair. Then, and then he punt. punt and then he punishes these women by fucking with their careers. It's like it's not fucking funny, man. It's not funny. So yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that reminds me of not not totally, but you you. I like reading your. I told you this in email, but I like reading your uh, your your column in Decibel. That's the first thing I do when I get the magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I get the magazine every month, is I flip back to yours. And uh, there's there's been a lot of there's been a lot of people in that magazine in that spot over the over the years, but yours is the first one that like I can't I I've never, I never remember going straight to the back page before. Um, and you tell a lot of interesting stories there, but you you only, you only have a short, you know, a short column, so it's it's easy to do. Six hundred fifty words, yeah. yeah. yeah so. <laughs> but you 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 fit a lot in there, and you you manage to make it funny and interesting. And uh, I, I I just want to tell you that I, that I really enjoy that. But you you that that, that that means a lot because I've asked Albert, and he was like, oh, people enjoying this at all? It's like doing radio. I don't even have any." He goes, "Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, fine, 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 yeah, they." Okay, man. Oh, you don't have to tell me if you don't want to tell me. It's, you know. Okay. All right. No, you know how I can tell that I that I'm enjoying it because I feel feel like you've been doing it for uh, at least a year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember, like, I, I look through. I keep a stack of them around here, and I, I look through, and I was like, I, I remember all of these without having to read them. You know, like I can just open it up yeah. and look at the and like, all right, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, well, that's uh, and it, well, you know what came out of it. I just was so tickled about the illustration that Ed Luce did with me and Scott Kelly. Yeah. I just put some bullshit on Twitter about doing it as a book, and and uh, and and you know, uh, the people from Feral Press were like, "Yeah, sure, let's do it as a book." You know, <laughs> so now Ed Luce and I are maybe going to do going to uh, do a memoir which covers my hardcore years but do it illustrated like that so nice. it could be pretty funny you know the story the stories that you know yeah. that i haven't put in the article you know well, that's that's awesome I, I hope that happens well do you yeah yeah well they're putting together a contract now so we'll see if ed goes for it i'll do it i would do i would do it for free but <laughs> yeah. but you know ed needs to get paid so yeah, you can't you can't shake a stick at that right but hey so yeah. um the you mentioned the kids. What do you? What do your kids think of your music? Um, well, they've all they've all seen it. They've come to the show, and I kind of pulled them into selling merch at odd times, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know they, they. I mean, they don't listen to that type of music, <laughs> <laughs> so they're pretty creative kids. But they, you know, they love their father. So the first time I think they saw it was Oxbow Acoustic, and then Ruby, my second daughter, saw us play in L.A. 
with uh, the guys who used to be in uh, the one of the guys used to be in the Melvins, and then uh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, uh, or no, Tomahawk. One of the guys was in Tom- Kevin Rudamanis, his new band, which is called Hepatitis. And Grace did did uh, merch for me. We played up in Oakland with Bruce Lamont's Brain Tentacles, and then we. So they've all been at the shows at odd times, but you know, it's it's, it's like their father, you know. They, yeah, yeah. It's like, I got the hat on. Here, you can wear the hat. Um, so they're all, with, with the exception of the eighteen-month-old, they're all just like, "That's my dad." You know. Right. So they, I mean, they've, they've grown up. You know. I mean, it's usually it's, and you know, I said my daughter's doing the merch. Don't fuck up, or I'll kill you. So everybody, everybody not that's not what I say to my kid. Right. That's what I say. To, that's what I say to the audience. You know, do not try to get. Don't ask her to cut deals. Don't rip her off and don't be rude to her or I'll kill you, you know. Um, but the, the weirdest one is when my mother comes to shows. I was like, Ma, did you, did you enjoy the show? And she's like, yeah, I really did. But the, the, it was a weird part. I go, what's the weird part? She goes, well, every time you did something with your penis, everybody would look at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, she's like, I guess they forgot that I've seen you naked for the major portion of your life. I was like, yeah, I guess uh, you know, when they thought you'd be upset. Who knows, you know, so. Yeah, I think they, I think she'd be called on by now, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So she she's seen us play a couple of times and has been a big, always a big supporter. Like my when I my first piece article in National Magazine mm-hmm. was uh, a piece in Hustler, and she went to the stand and bought Hustler and came back to her <laughs> office and showed it to everybody. Had it folded over, but showed it, showed it to everybody in the office, you know. And they're like, "What magazine is that?" She's like, "Ah, oh, that magazine doesn't matter." You know? <laughs> national one that's all that's an accomplishment so, yeah that's a- <laughs> that's right well uh speaking of uh your writing how often i'm sure it's had to have happened do you get confused for eugene robinson the political columnist <laughs> all the time and the best part is when i get his checks that's a great <laughs> and at one point i cashed about three of them because i just thought oh cool because i've been on npr so uh, I, then i was like after the third one i was like I haven't been on them recently. Why are they say? And I was like, "Oh shit, it's the other dude." So I said, "Hey," I contacted him and said, "Hey, man, uh, you know, you what do you want me to do?" He goes, "Oh, I'll talk to your accounting." I said, "You want me to send you those things?" He never got back. It's like I'm not pulling the money out of my bank. Way I got a one way wallet, man. <laughs> it's their fault. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, but uh, but yeah. At one point, when I was editor in chief of this Code magazine, this men's fashion magazine, L.A., I was like. Hey man, we should do like a Eugene Robinson on Eugene Robinson, and he kind of gave me the high hand. But then I then I understood it. It was like he's about ten years older than me. The guy won a Pulitzer. It's kind of a drag. It's just a guy with the same name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're writing about Pulitzer stuff, and this guy is writing about taking too much acid and whatever. You know, it's just it's got to be it's got to be a drag. Hey kid, look what I got. Yeah, I, I, I so, gotta imagine the mix up are a little more a uh, little more detrimental for him than they are for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's best is when people who hate him write me, and I'll say like, "Yo, the article that you wrote today on on Mago was you was," and I'll say, "Hey, hey, I got a good idea." I'll write back to them. I'll say, "Hey, I got a good idea." Yeah, next time we meet, because we could meet sometime, I'd like you to open your mouth and put my testicles in and gargle them if you could. If you could really gargle it, and they're like, "Oh, does your newspaper know you talk like this?" I go, "There's nothing wrong with the word gargle or testicles." You. You having them in your mouth is something that might be a problem. But, you know. So I, I don't know if he would appreciate, but I'd like to say that I'm probably his anger interpreter. You know. 
That's funny. I, I knew there had to be some overlap between the two of you. <laughs> oh no, yeah. I, I like 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 Boyd Rice, you know, this, like a, who's a known associate of mine. He's like he's a, I'm an obscene phone answerer. You call me and it's a wrong number. You don't know what you're gonna get. <laughs> oh, you know. uh. All right. Well, hey, I wanted to hit on one more thing just because it's something you do, and uh, and I just wanted to bring it to everybody's attention. But you do the Eugene S. Robinson Show Stomper show on YouTube, yes. right? Where you talk. Yeah. Uh, now, now kind of like a, a visual companion to the Substack, which is what got me fired. And then got me at the center of one of the hugest media controversies in 2021, <laughs> which now has me in various film deals. And, you know, uh, ha- I have lawyers lurking in the bushes in front of my house. Wait, hold the Department on. Of Justice. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you didn't know about this? No. Oh, okay. Well, if you go to my Substack, eugenesrobinson.substack.com, uh, there's an article there called uh, uh, Aussie Rules. Uh, the house Negro always gets it in the end. And the company that I worked for nine years as an editor at large, this place, a thing called Ozzy, uh, put out yeah, by Ozzy yeah. Media, um, uh, turns out that the, the COO who had just fired me in June for having a Substack, uh, that he on a call, a finance call with Goldman Sachs, disguised himself vocally as, a, as an executive from YouTube for four, to try to defraud them out of $40 million. And this whole thing broke um, October, the first week of October. Um, and in fact, they were working on, I refused to pull down my sub stack because they cut my salary 19% and I was making up for it. And so we were working on the severance thing and they were really fucking me with the severance thing. And I was on, I was on the phone with Ben Smith from the New York Times and I wasn't going to go on record because, you know, I was worried about my severance. And at the same time, I'm being texted by my lawyer saying that they're going to honor the severance because they believe you wrote this negative glass door review to them. Um, and I said, I did it. And they said, they don't believe you. They think you're a liar. So they're not going to pay your severance. And that was the point at which I was like, all right, Ben Smith, you can quote me on all that. And the floodgates came. So now they've got two Department of Justice investigations. All of their financial backers have left. Their high-powered talent from Caddy K, who was from the BBC, quit. Uh, one of the major investors, Ron Conway, who invested in Facebook and Google and so on, sued them so that they would take the money that they had socked away to pay the employees. They said, Friday, the company's out of business. And then the boss was like realizing he's going to have to pay people severance. So, no, no, we're really in business. If you don't come back to work, you, you, you've abandoned your job. We're not paying you anything. And he sued them. Uh, and now, you know, in addition to the Department of Justice, IRS is looking into because they took PPP funds and they weren't supposed to lay people off and they spent the money. It was just a whole financial. And so immediately afterward, I wrote a piece for the Substack, another piece for Substack. Then I wrote a piece for the New York Times. And then I've been subsequently approached by uh, NBC Universal for the documentary film, you know, in conjunction with the New York Times and then some. Matt Bai, who used to be at the New York Times, has now become a feature film guy. They're making it into a feature film. Um, so all this stuff is... And they got law- lawyers lurking in the bushes out in front of my house, not telling me who like, they were. Literally? Trying to get me... Literally, man. I found some dude out there. like, what are you doing? And he was like, I'd like to talk to you about financial... And I said, hey, anything I know, you, you can read in the New York Times. I've already written it. So, um, so that was t- 2021 for me. 
<laughs> and, and then, of course, as, as a result of that, uh, people like will clamor to hire me. So I'm now currently employed again as a vice president at uh, at this company called an amusingly named uh, super large agency called Wong Duty, um, <laughs> and, and they're own, they're owned by this billion dollar Indian company called Infosys. And um, and so that's that's what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, God damn. Uh, and uh, pe- people people are reading the New York Times and reading CNN Business and Fortune Magazine and like, how the fuck does Eugene from Oxbow? <laughs> this is the last <laughs> name I expected to pop up in the middle of this article. But you know what? I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised either. Just uh, just like I like I said in the beginning, you're always doing so much, and somehow you keep doing more. That's incredible, man. The- <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you, I, I have to tell you that my my ex boss was such a complete and total piece of shit. I write about this in the Substack that it's been endlessly delightful to to see everything that he spent nine years trying to defraud people out of just crumble down like a house of sand. I can't tell you. The amount of delight what happened in 2021 <laughs> he was probably one of the worst people I've ever dealt with in my entire life. Wow! So the the hardcore the hardcore guy the punk rocker in me oh you know I tell you the, the song in my head when they were trying to fire me was you got to know it was a bad brain song and you got to know the song was we will not <laughs> you know it's like. You don't know what people are dealing with. They just thought, you know, it was an editorial guy, just like a Silicon Valley editorial guy. And it's like, in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, we will not do what they want to do what they say. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fuck you. <laughs> Damn. Well, Eugene, you're a, you're a fascinating guy, uh, like a true true character. And uh, I mean that in the best way. So, so you mean, you mean so like Lisa said in 1972, I'm not boring? Uh, good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no. Hey, man. Thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. I've, I've truly enjoyed it, and, uh, and I've, I've enjoyed a lot of your work over the years. For all the fucking million bands you've been in, the, the writing that you do, the you know, you, you, uh, you genuinely provided me hours and hours of entertainment throughout my life. So I, so I'm grateful to you for that. Well, that's so cool, man. Well, send me. The, the, yeah, I got it. It's bath time now. Yeah, Cora. <laughs> You want to say goodbye to Daniel? <laughs> so, but send me a link when it, when, when it's ready. You got it, man. I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. Absolutely. She, I, I, she, she's not. She's not willing to say goodbye to you. Uh, that's cool. I won't yeah. take it personally. <laughs> there, she is. There, 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 you got a little bit of a high. Okay. All right, man. All right, later. Thanks, Blake.
So there you have it. That was my conversation with Eugene S. Robinson. And as you heard, it was a good time, and I'm glad to have done it. The song you just heard there was Gal, which comes off of Let Me Be a Woman, available now on Black House Records. Maybe still available, though I doubt it. If you missed out, you missed out. All right? Be on the lookout for the next reissue. We talked about it in there. If you missed it, go back and listen. Or just go check out everything that Black House has going on. A truly diverse roster on that record label. I love everything that Scott Rosell is doing there. It's uh, it's about as interesting as a record label gets. The next release that I'm aware of that's coming from uh, Black House Records is Nate No Face, who, who is uh, gaining a lot of popularity lately. And uh, maybe you'll hear more about that. I don't know. Um, what else should you check out? You should go to Instagram at getting underscore it underscore out underscore podcast and follow the getting it out Instagram, Instagram page. That's what it is. Uh, you can go to Facebook, facebook.com slash getting it out podcast. I'm on there as well, but that's really just a copy of whatever's happening on the Instagram. I think there's a Facebook group still for getting it out podcast, but I don't know that anything is on it. Uh, so don't do that. Uh, You can email me anytime you'd like, dan at gettingitout.net. And lately I've been getting quite a few emails, a lot from local bands, because they've heard my call for local music. I'm going to be talking to a lot of local bands and musicians on the next few episodes. And uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to feature some South Central Pennsylvania music. So be on the lookout for that, especially if you're in the area. Don't worry. we got a lot of other stuff happening with more well-known artists and... uh, you know, you know the drill by now. If you if you're still on board, 208 episodes into getting it out podcast, I appreciate that. If you're brand new and you just came here because you wanted to hear what Eugene had to say, uh, I welcome it. Stick around if you want to. Leave if you want to. I don't really give a shit at this point, but I enjoy hearing that people like what they're hearing. So let me know or don't. I don't know. Whatever. I'm more used to that probably. Let's end this episode with a new song. A new song from a relatively new band made up of old people. How about that? How about a song called Plastic Tongues from Bitter Branches? They got a new record coming out on Revelation Records on February 25th. It is also going to be released on Rude Records across the seas. And, uh, you know, it's got members from uh, from Dead Guy, Kiss It Goodbye, Lighten Up, Walleye, Kid Dynamite. Paint It Black, Lifetime, you know these names, but do you know this band? Bitter Branches, Plastic Tongues. Check it out. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.